You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Welcome to episode 94 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. With this episode, we'll wrap up the story of the Fort Henry, Fort Donelson campaign. When we started off, as y'all will recall, Brigadier General Ulysses S. Grant and Flag Officer Andrew Foote were given the green light by their superior, Major General Henry Halleck, to attack Fort Henry on the Tennessee River. The federal troops were put ashore just downriver from the fort, and Grant planned to overwhelm Henry with a combined Army-Navy attack on February 6, 1862. But the same rains that had already nearly flooded Fort Henry had also turned the local dirt roads into muddy quagmires, so Grant's advance on the morning of the 6th was slowed to a crawl. But most of the Confederate defenders had already made a hasty exit, heading for Fort Donelson, 12 miles to the east, and so even before Grant's mud-spattered troops arrived at Fort Henry, Foote's ironclads and timberclads attacked the place and forced its surrender after a short bombardment. The victory opened the Tennessee River to the Yankee gunboats, which could range up the river all the way into the deep south. And even before the smoke had cleared at Fort Henry, the three federal timberclads proceeded to do just that, raiding up river all the way to Florence in northwestern Alabama. The fall of Fort Henry meant that Confederate General Albert Sidney Johnston's defensive line in the war's western theater had been cracked open. The Yankees' victory and their control of the Tennessee River meant that the rebels' fortified position on the Mississippi at Columbus, Kentucky, had been outflanked. The Confederates there would either have to evacuate the place or else be trapped and forced to surrender. But that was just the beginning of Albert Sidney Johnston's troubles. Johnston believed that if Fort Henry could not hold out against the federal gunboats, then odds were that Fort Donelson on the Cumberland River would also fall in short order. And once the Yankees controlled the Cumberland, their gunboats and transports could sail up the river to Nashville. And not only would the fall of Tennessee's state capital deprive the Confederacy of an important supply depot and manufacturing center, it would also cut off Johnston's army at Bowling Green, Kentucky. To meet these threats, Johnston consulted with the newly arrived PGT Beauregard. With the Federals' control of the Tennessee River essentially driving a wedge deep into the Confederacy's huge and sprawling Department No. 2, it was agreed that Beauregard would assume command of the western part of the department and supervise the evacuation of Columbus. Albert Sidney Johnston would retain command of the eastern half of the department and personally supervise the retreat from Bowling Green as the army there withdrew southward to cross the Cumberland River at Nashville. 
Johnston knew that his decision meant the Confederates would not only be retreating from southern Kentucky, but that most of Tennessee would also be lost, allowing the Federals to advance and stand on the borders of the Deep South states, where they would threaten the line of the Memphis and Charleston Railroad, the South's most important east-west transportation artery. Albert Sidney Johnston realized that retreating from Kentucky and giving up most of Tennessee would put him in a desperate situation, but he believed he had no choice. Well, he did have a choice, but he was unwilling to rush his entire army to Fort Donelson and risk an all-or-nothing battle against Grant at that spot. And so while Johnston supervised the Bowling Green retreat himself and sent Beauregard to take charge of the withdrawal from Columbus, he pursued a curious course with regard to Fort Donelson. He reinforced the fort, sending thousands of more troops there, and yet he refused to fully commit to its defense since he believed that the Yankee gunboats alone could subdue the place. It's unclear just what Johnston's intentions were with regard to the defense of Fort Donelson. It seems as if he wished a stand to be made there, long enough at least to buy time for the Bowling Green force to safely retreat, but then he seems to have expected the garrison to cut its way out and rejoin him south of Nashville. If those were Johnston's intentions, he doesn't seem to have made them very clear to the officer he placed in command of Fort Donelson, Brigadier General John B. Floyd. Floyd was a former governor of Virginia and had served as Secretary of War in James Buchanan's cabinet, but despite those impressive credentials, he was utterly unsuited to hold high military command during the Civil War, and he proved to be a hopelessly inept political general. To his credit, Floyd knew he was in over his head commanding the Cumberland River defenses, but although he pleaded with Albert Sidney Johnston for specific guidance, Johnston couldn't be bothered to personally attend to the critical situation at Fort Donelson. As for Ulysses S. Grant, in his book, Decision in the Heartland, Stephen E. Woodworth writes, quote, While the Confederates braced themselves for the next blow, Grant was only too eager to give it. In his dispatch notifying Halleck of the capture of Fort Henry, he added, I shall take and destroy Fort Donelson on the 8th and return to Fort Henry. What prevented him from doing so was the weather. Rain, snow, and sleet, wrote an Illinois colonel to his wife. The whole country nothing but mud and slush. The roads impassable almost for horses. Movements with artillery impossible. Besides, Flag Officer Foote's gunboats were temporarily laid up for several days for repairs at Cairo. So, vexed and impatient, Grant had to wait. End quote. But Grant only had to wait until February 12th, and on that day he started his army on the march to Fort Donelson. After brief skirmishing along the line of march, the Federal troops reached Donelson and began to invest or move into position around the fort. A cold north wind began to blow that night, and the soldiers of both sides, many without blankets or overcoats, spent an uncomfortable night as they tried to stay warm as best they could without lighting campfires, which were not allowed since the opposing lines were so close together that fires would have attracted the attention of enemy sharpshooters or artillery pieces. The next day, the 13th, minor fighting flared up at several places along the lines, but not a major engagement, since Grant was waiting for Foote's gunboats and transports to arrive. Rain started to fall on the 13th, and after dark, as the temperature plunged once again, the rain turned to sleet and then to snow. 
the soldiers of both sides spent a miserable night exposed to the brutal weather. By morning, three inches of snow had fallen, and the temperature was well below freezing. When dawn came at last on February 14th, Grant went to meet with Foote, whose flotilla had arrived just downriver from Fort Donelson during the night. At his meeting with Foote, Grant pressed the naval officer to make an attack as soon as possible, since Grant was hoping the Navy would be able to replicate the victory it had won at Fort Henry. Because if Foote could do that here at Fort Donelson, it would mean Grant's army wouldn't have to go through the grim and tedious business of subjecting the place to a prolonged siege. And so while Grant's reinforcements began to file off the transports and march toward the front lines, Foote readied his ironclads and timberclads to attack the enemy fort. But when the Yankee gunboats steamed upstream on the afternoon of the 14th and attacked the rebels' water batteries, they discovered that Fort Donelson was not Fort Henry. The guns at Fort Donelson were positioned in two batteries on a hillside above the riverbank, and so they could deliver plunging fire down onto the Federal ironclads. Despite the enemy's advantage, Foote's gunboats drove stubbornly forward against the Cumberland's swift current, moving in ever closer to the rebel batteries. They fired about a thousand shells, yet they did no significant damage to the Confederate positions and caused no casualties among the defenders. The southern gunners, on the other hand, pounded the attackers relentlessly with accurate and deadly fire, and one by one, the Yankee ironclads were disabled and sent drifting back downstream. As the last battered ironclad disappeared from view downstream, a tremendous cheer went up from the Confederate lines, and the Federal troops listening inland knew what it meant. Grant's first plan for taking Fort Donelson had failed, and, however much he disliked the idea, he would have to settle in to besiege the place. But unknown to Grant, the Confederate commanders inside the fort were making their own plans to avoid being trapped at Donelson during a prolonged siege. There had been a plan to attempt a breakout from the fort earlier that day, but the operation had hardly started before it was called off. Now, however, even though they had triumphed over the Yankee ironclads, Grant's army was only growing stronger, and so the rebel officers decided the time had come for the garrison to abandon Fort Donelson. To that end, in the morning, they would launch a surprise attack against the Federal lines, cut their way out to the southeast, and escape to join the rest of Albert Sidney Johnston's army. The night of February 14th was a second straight night of snow and extreme cold, and so once again few of the miserable men on either side of the lines got much rest, as without overcoats or fires they strove just to avoid freezing. For most of the frozen Federals not only had their regimental baggage still not caught up with them, but now hunger was beginning to gnaw at them as rations were also in short supply, since the limited number of wagons available had to haul provisions all the way from Fort Henry or over the rough road from the little landing on the Cumberland several miles to the north. Meanwhile, across the way, the shivering Confederate soldiers suffered through another sleepless night as their officers, in confusion and haste, struggled in the winter cold and darkness to prepare their units to participate in the major attack that was set to kick off at dawn. The Confederate plan was to shatter the extreme right of the enemy line with a surprise attack, and with that sudden hammer blow to open the Forge Road and Wins Ferry Road out of the town of Dover. 
Using those roads to escape from Fort Donelson, the garrison would eventually get to Nashville and join the rest of the Confederate army that had already completed its retreat from Bowling Green. Gideon Pillow would lead the actual attack on the Federal lines, while Simon Bolivar Buckner would position his men so they could act as the rear guard while the rebels made good their escape from the fort. The breakout was to commence at dawn on the morning of Saturday the 15th, but as we mentioned near the end of last week's show, the briefing of the Confederate, Brigade, and Regimental commanders was short on critical details with regard to the attack and the evacuation plan, and as a consequence, most of the rebel officers had either a confused or mistaken idea as to the objectives when they went into battle. At his headquarters at the Widow Crisp House, Ulysses S. Grant was up early on Saturday morning. He was going out to meet with the wounded Andrew Foote and find out the condition of the battered Federal gunboat flotilla. Before he departed his headquarters, Grant left orders to his three division commanders that they were to hold their positions and do nothing that might provoke a major engagement. As we mentioned last week, C.F. Smith's division held the left or northern part of the Federal lines around Fort Donelson, while the right or southern sector was held by John McClernand's division. And then just the day before, a new third division had been created from the just-arriving reinforcements, and Grant gave it to Lew Wallace. This new third division was put into the center of the Union line where it plugged the gap that had previously existed between Smith's and McClernand's forces. As Grant and some of his staff set off northward about sunrise, they could hear some small arms and even artillery firing in the distance. But there had been a bit of shooting every morning as the troops on each side of the lines began to move about and thaw out. And so on the morning of the 15th, Grant thought nothing of the firing he could hear off in the distance, later writing, quote, When I left the line to visit Flag Officer Foote, I had no idea that there would be any engagement on land unless I brought it on myself. The enemy, however, had taken the initiative. End quote. The enemy had indeed seized the initiative, and what Grant was hearing was actually the beginning of the Confederate attack on McClernand's division. As y'all might recall, in the last episode, we made a passing mention to the fact that late in the afternoon, the day before, Grant had ordered Colonel John MacArthur's brigade to march over from the Union Army's left wing and bolster the extreme right of McClernand's line. But MacArthur's men had arrived after dark, and truth be told, on Saturday morning, MacArthur wasn't even sure what exactly was expected of him or even where he was. As it happened, the rebels' surprise attack that morning struck MacArthur's men first. Before the day was over, the unlucky brigade would suffer about 27% casualties. Gideon Pillow attacked out of the Confederate lines with 14 regiments, and their weight soon began to tell on the surprised Yankees. After an hour, MacArthur's Federals were falling back to keep from being encircled, and the next Federal unit to their left, the brigade led by Colonel Richard J. Oglesby, was giving ground as Pillow fed more and more rebel regiments into the attack and peeled back the extreme right of the Federal line like opening a tin can. A lieutenant in the 18th Illinois, in Oglesby's brigade, said, quote, The rebels open fire on our pickets and run them in. We formed the line of battle, expecting only a slight skirmish. But when we came to the brow of the hill, we seen our mistake, for we could see them coming in columns of regiments, and the firing was terrific, beyond description. End quote. 
With the continuing success of the Confederates' attack, McClernand's situation was rapidly deteriorating, and so he sent a messenger to Army headquarters to request assistance. But Grant had left for his meeting with Foote, and none of his staff who had remained behind would take responsibility for changing the commanding general's standing orders, orders that nothing was to be done that might bring on a major engagement. The Federal soldiers hit by the Confederate attack were not panicking. They were putting up a stubborn resistance, but nevertheless the relentless rebel assault continued to shove the Yankees back and slowly but surely roll up their line. Since, with Grant absent, help would not be coming from Army headquarters, a desperate McClernand turned to his left to Lew Wallace and his division for help. When McClernand's messenger, a major, galloped up, he breathlessly told Wallace, quote, The general told me to tell you the whole rebel force in the fort massed against him during the night. Our ammunition is giving out. We are losing ground. No one can tell what will be the result if we don't get immediate help, end quote. But Wallace refused the plea for help. He had only been a division commander for about 18 hours and was understandably hesitant to violate Grant's standing orders. But by the time another messenger from McClernand arrived, a colonel tearfully pleading for help, everything Wallace had seen and heard from that direction convinced him that whether the absent Grant wished it or not, a major engagement was already taking place and in fact, the entire federal right was in danger of collapsing, and a disaster was in the making. So when McClernand's second messenger arrived, Lew Wallace was prepared to act on his own authority. He detached a brigade under Colonel Charles Cruft and sent it to McClernand's aid. Cruft's troops arrived on the federal right just in time to support hard-pressed units from MacArthur's and Oglesby's commands who were almost out of ammunition. By that time, many of McClernand's men had been fighting for three hours and had long since used up their 40 rounds and were reduced to scavenging among the dead and wounded for more ammunition. When Cruft came up, some Union regiments were reluctantly leaving the fight and making their way to the rear, looking for ordnance wagons so they could replenish their empty cartridge boxes. On the Confederate side of the fight, Gideon Pillow seemed to be everywhere, rallying and personally leading forward the main rebel assault as it slowly but surely rolled up the Federal line. But although Pillow's part of the attack seemed to be on the verge of success, Simon Bolivar Buckner's part of the plan wasn't going so well. Leaving behind only a skeleton force to hold his sector of the lines in the north, Buckner, in the early morning darkness, was late arriving in the center, and it was about an hour after Pillow's assault kicked off before Buckner's division was in position to support the main Confederate attack. The ground in front of Buckner's force was the far left of McClernand's line and was held by Colonel W.H.L. Wallace's brigade. Federal Brigade Commander W.H.L. Wallace was no relation to Federal Division Commander Lou Wallace. Right. So, dear listeners, just keep in mind that now we have two Wallaces on the battlefield. Anyway, W.H.L. Wallace and his brigade were lined up on the Winds Ferry Road in front of Simon Bolivar Buckner's Confederates, and about 9 a.m. Buckner sent three regiments forward to probe the Federal position. But the rebels were hit with devastating fire from three Union artillery batteries on high ground, and Buckner's first attack was beaten back. But Wallace's position was now being squeezed from two directions, from Buckner to the front, and also from the right, 
where Pillow's force was still relentlessly moving forward, steadily applying pressure and still rolling up the Federal line. And so a bit later, when Buckner sent in a second, more determined attack, his men, with a major assist from Pillow's still advancing units, Buckner's men succeeded in pushing Wallace's brigade back and off the Winds Ferry Road. Sometime just past noon, our two Wallaces met here on the battlefield for the first time. Lew Wallace saw an officer riding toward him at the head of four or five hundred soldiers in retreat from the collapsing Federal right. The officer was W.H.L. Wallace, leading the battered remnant of his brigade. Lew and W.H.L. exchanged greetings, and then W.H.L. informed Lew that the rebels were just back over the hill and would be along shortly, telling Lew, quote, You will about have time to form line at battle right here, end quote. Lew Wallace took that excellent advice and positioned nine regiments into line of battle on good defensive ground and then waited. He did not have to wait for very long, though, before the Confederates attacked his position. For the next hour, Lew Wallace's men stubbornly held their ground as the rebels attacked again and again and again, but this time the Federals could not be shoved back. On his first full day as a division commander, Lew Wallace had finally halted the Confederate attack and stopped the collapse of the Union Army's right flank. But in his book, Where the South Lost the War, an analysis of the Fort Henry-Fort Donelson campaign, Kendall Gott explains that, quote, So far the Confederates had exceeded all expectations. It was an achievement worthy of the highest praise for Southern armies. Although miserably armed and poorly trained, the Confederate soldiers had pushed their counterparts back over a mile or two of rugged, timbered, and snow-covered terrain. The sortie had opened the roads to Nashville. As it stood at 1 p.m., the Union right flank was forced back onto the center, and General Buckner held the escape route open. All that was left of the plan was to extract the men and as many supplies as they could carry. End quote. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor a revolutionary, and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. 
I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. By early afternoon of Saturday, February 15, 1862, although Lew Wallace had finally stopped the relentless Confederate assault, the Federals were still battered, shaken, and in need of a commander to decide their next move. The Federal right had been rolled up like a carpet, and in spite of Wallace's stand, the rebels' escape route stood wide open. But at that moment, Gideon Pillow made a fateful decision that changed everything. Simon Bolivar Buckner's men were in position to hold open the hard-won escape route along the Winds Ferry and Forge Roads. They had come with their knapsacks and rations, prepared to act as the rear guard, while the rest of the Confederate Army marched away from Fort Donelson and retreated toward Nashville. But then Buckner was amazed to see that nearby Confederate troops were not escaping from the fort, but going back toward their original positions inside the rebel lines. That was because Pillow, without consulting with Floyd or Buckner, had ordered his men to fall back to the positions they had started from nine hours earlier. Incredibly, Pillow believed the final decision to escape had not actually been made, and he apparently thought the Federals had been struck such a severe blow and were so disorganized that the Confederates could march back into the fort, gather up their belongings, and, at their leisure, be ready to evacuate the place later that night or early the next morning. Floyd had made himself scarce through most of the day, leaving Pillow and Buckner to see to the management of the battle. But now, upon learning of Pillow's retrograde movement, he finally asserted himself, asking in frustration, quote, In the name of God, General Pillow, what have we been fighting for all day? Certainly not to show our powers, but solely to secure the Winds Ferry Road, and after securing it, you order it given up, end quote. It became clear that whatever Floyd and Buckner thought had been decided at the Council of War the night before, Pillow had other ideas. However, as the three Confederate brigadiers argued, and as Buckner's men now also withdrew back into the rebel lines, Ulysses S. Grant finally arrived on the battlefield, and he was about to exercise the sort of bold, decisive leadership that was sorely lacking on the Confederates' side of the lines. In his book, The Battle of Fort Donelson, No Terms But Unconditional Surrender, James R. Knight explains that, quote, When Grant finished his meeting with Flag Officer Foote and arrived back on shore, an aide was waiting with news of the battle, and as fast as his horse could negotiate the frozen and slippery roads, Grant headed back. He arrived at the scene of Lee Wallace's stand to find Wallace and McClernand conferring. However shaken Grant might have been, he resisted the impulse to retreat and circle the wagons. Instead, he made an observation and two key decisions. Grant's observation was that the troops he saw who had fallen back from the Confederate onslaught weren't defeated. They were just leaderless. He rode among some of them, shouting for them to refill their cartridge boxes and reform. Soon, other officers joined in the effort, and some order began to emerge out of the chaos. Next, he ordered the roads retaken to prevent the escape of the Confederates in the night. 
This job he gave to McClernand, who would later convince Lee Wallace to do it instead. Finally, he decided to order an attack on the Confederate right, convinced that in order to mount an attack with that much manpower on their left, they must have stripped their right of most of its troops and left it vulnerable. That job went to C.F. Smith, who was already in position. Grant told an aide, The one who attacks first now will be victorious, and the enemy will have to be in a hurry if he gets ahead of me. End quote. Leaving McClernand and Wallace, Grant rode off and found Smith, who had been commandant of cadets when Grant was at West Point, calmly sitting under a tree. Smith and the men of his division had spent all morning listening to the constant thunder of cannons and the rattle of musketry coming from the opposite end of the Federal lines. It was sometime after 2 p.m. when Grant found Smith and explained the situation. Grant was in a desperate spot, but he believed that in order for the Confederates to mass the men to attack to the south, there must only be a token rebel force still opposite Smith's sector. Grant concluded with, All has failed on the right. You must take Fort Donelson. Smith, the consummate professional, simply looked at his former student and said, I will do it. Charles Ferguson Smith spent 36 years of his life as a soldier, but this afternoon at Fort Donelson would be the finest moment of his career. He quickly ordered that Colonel Jacob Lawman's brigade, with its five regiments, would lead the assault on the Confederate lines across the way, and Colonel John Cook's brigade was to advance and support on the right. Smith told his subordinate commanders that they were to steadily advance across the broken terrain. They were to rely on the bayonet and not to fire a shot until the enemy's works were reached and his line broken. Smith then rode up to the men of the 2nd Iowa in Lawman's brigade and told them that they would spearhead the Federal attack. His orders to them were brief and to the point. Smith said, 2nd Iowa, you must take the fort, take the caps off your guns, fix bayonets, and I will lead you. The Confederate right wing had, in fact, been stripped of almost every regiment, and only a very thinly spread 30th Tennessee defended the sector that had previously been held by Simon Bolivar Buckner's entire division. But although few in number, the Tennesseans resisted fiercely, making the Yankees pay dearly for every yard they advanced. At the defenders' first volley, nearly 200 men of the 2nd Iowa fell dead or wounded, and the 25th Indiana soon suffered almost as many casualties as it advanced in support of the Iowans. But the Union soldiers moved steadily on, advancing off their ridge line, then down into a hollow choked with brush and fallen timber, then up the hill toward the Confederate entrenchments. As his men struggled up the steep slope, Smith, still mounted on his horse and making a perfect target, yet somehow untouched by the rebel fire, Smith bellowed, Damn you, gentlemen, I see skulkers. I'll have none here. Come on, you volunteers. This is your chance. You volunteered to be killed, and now you can be. In Gott's book, he writes that, quote, The colors of the 2nd Iowa were positioned with the left wing of the regiment. Early in the action, four musket balls felled Sergeant Harry B. Doolittle, who carried the flag. Corporal Sentius G. Page took up the colors, but soon fell dead. Corporal James M. Churcher carried them further, but received a wound that would cost him his arm. Corporal Harry E. Weaver was killed next, and Corporal Benjamin Robinson was shot in the face. The last man of the color guard on his feet, Corporal Voltaire P. Twombly, 
then took up the colors without hesitation, but was knocked down by a spent ball. In spite of the pain, he got up and carried the flag, and it was the first to be planted inside the enemy defensive works. For his actions that day, Twombly later received the Medal of Honor. The Second Iowa paid dearly for its place of honor on the field. Over half of its men became casualties during the assault. End quote. As the Second Iowa and the other regiments in Smith's division reached the Confederate line, the overwhelmed 30th Tennessee fled for their lives back toward the next ridge line. That last ridge was the only thing that stood between Smith's Federals and the Confederates' water batteries over on the Cumberland, but just at that moment, Simon Bolivar Buckner's troops arrived, coming back to their old sector at the Double Quick after the aborted breakout attempt. The last-minute arrival of Buckner's men finally stopped Smith's attack, and as night came on, the Federals took over what had been the Confederates' rifle pits and trenches, while Buckner's rebels spent another cold night on that last ridgeline. That last ridgeline was now all that stood between the Yankees and the river, and everyone assumed the fight would resume in the morning. As Smith had been making his assault, other Federal troops were also advancing. Since McClernand's division had been badly battered and disorganized by the morning's fighting, McClernand convinced Lew Wallace to use his division to retake the ground that had been lost, as Grant had ordered. And so, not long after Smith attacked to the north, Wallace went forward with ten regiments, back down the Winds Ferry Road. By that time, almost all of the Confederates had already withdrawn back into their lines, but one rebel brigade was still trying to hold the escape route open. The advancing Union soldiers pushed those rebels back toward their lines, and then the Federals kept right on moving forward, so that by nightfall, Lew Wallace's men had retaken most of the ground that had been lost that morning, but not all. As darkness fell, Wallace positioned his men to renew the assault in the morning, not to block every avenue of escape that the enemy might use. And how much of a gap still existed that night that the Confederates could have used to escape is still a matter of debate to this day. At any rate, in the end, it hardly mattered, for as the darkened battlefield gradually quieted and details from both sides combed the snow-covered ground for wounded, inside the Confederate lines that night, another council of war would take place, and the decisions made at that meeting would seal the fate of most of Fort Donelson's defenders. That night, Floyd, Pillow, and Buckner argued about Pillow's decision to abort the breakout and withdraw back inside the Confederate lines. But as far as most of the rank-and-file rebel soldiers were concerned, they may be cold, hungry, and bone-tired, but they believed that they had beaten the Yankees that day, and now they awaited the orders that would send them marching back out to evacuate the fort. And indeed, early reports that reached Confederate headquarters seemed to confirm that the escape route was still open. But then other reports started to come in, reporting that enemy campfires could now be seen all across the ground the rebels would use to evacuate the fort. Had the escape route been closed off after all? No one could agree, so they sent for Nathan Bedford Forrest and asked him to send out some cavalry scouts. Forrest himself went out and reported that the road closest to the river was still unguarded, although it was flooded at one point for a couple of hundred yards and the water was saddle-skirt deep on the horses. That meant mounted men might be able to use the road to escape, 
but asking infantry to wade through the ice-cold water in the frigid temperatures was another matter entirely. In the end, Simon Bolivar Buckner was apparently the first one to bring up the possibility of surrendering. He was sure C.F. Smith would renew his attack in the north in the morning, and Buckner claimed that, given the exhausted condition of his men, they wouldn't be able to withstand the Federal assault for even half an hour. As for trying to fight their way out or having the infantry wade through the ice-cold water on the flooded road, well, Buckner was sure either course would mean the sacrifice of too many of the defenders. In fact, he thought they could lose three-fourths of the army, and so Buckner became fixated on surrendering the garrison. Gideon Pillow didn't believe the Confederates' situation was nearly as bleak as Buckner painted it, and, becoming annoyed at Buckner's defeatism, Pillow attempted to argue with his old personal enemy, but Floyd ended the debate when he indicated that his opinion matched Buckner's. Although Floyd agreed with Buckner that the fort's garrison must be surrendered to avoid a needless sacrifice of the men, Floyd had no intention of actually staying around for the capitulation, since he believed that because of his treacherous activity while serving as James Buchanan's Secretary of War, if the Federals got their hands on him now, they would try him for treason. Pillow, still not agreeing with the decision to surrender the garrison, also said that he would not give himself up to the enemy. With Floyd and Pillow having made their choices such as they were, one of the most shameful episodes of the war then proceeded to unfold. It was agreed that Floyd would turn over command to Pillow. Gideon Pillow would then relinquish it to Buckner, and while Floyd and Pillow made good their personal escapes, Buckner would open surrender negotiations with Ulysses S. Grant. With that, Floyd turned to Pillow and told him, General Pillow, I turn the command over, sir. Pillow replied, and I pass it, to which Buckner said, I assume it. When Nathan Bedford Forrest heard of this ugly business, he returned to headquarters and wasn't shy about expressing his dissatisfaction at the unexpected turn of events, declaring, quote, I did not come here with the purpose of surrendering my command and would not do it if they would follow me out. I intend to go out if I save but one man, end quote. Forrest then gathered all his cavalrymen who would go with him and added some other willing souls riding artillery horses, about 500 or so men in all, and made his way out the river road and across flooded Lick Creek, all without a shot being fired at him. He would always remain firmly convinced that most of the garrison could have escaped that same way if the generals had only been willing to try. Simon Bolivar Buckner composed a short note to be taken across the lines to Grant. The bearer of the note went across the Union lines in C.F. Smith's sector, and Smith then took him to Grant's headquarters. As Smith warmed himself by the fire at the Widow Crisp house, Grant read Buckner's note. It said, Sir, in consideration of all the circumstances governing the present situation of affairs at this station, I propose to the commanding officers of the Federal Forces the appointment of commissioners to agree upon terms of capitulation of the forces and posts under my command, and in that view suggest an armistice until 12 o'clock today. After he finished reading Buckner's note, Grant passed it to Smith and asked what answer he should send back. Smith growled, No terms to the damned rebels. Grant laughed and then sat down and wrote out his reply. It read, Sir, yours of this date, 
proposing armistice and appointment of commissioners to settle terms of capitulation is just received. No terms except unconditional surrender can be accepted. I propose to move immediately upon your works. When Grant had Smith read it, the old soldier's only comment was, Same thing in smoother words. Buckner was perhaps expecting a more cordial response from his old friend Grant since the rebel officer's reply read, Sir, the distribution of the forces under my command, incident to an unexpected change of commanders, and the overwhelming force under your command, compel me, notwithstanding the brilliant success of the Confederate Army yesterday, to accept the ungenerous and unchivalrous terms which you propose." As word of the surrender filtered out to the Confederate soldiers, most were still preparing for the renewal of the battle, and they were first shocked and disbelieving, and then angry at the news that the garrison was being surrendered. Meanwhile, Pillow and Floyd were making their getaways. Pillow was rowed across the Cumberland in a small boat and eventually made his way overland to Nashville. Floyd collected his brigade, four Virginia regiments, and the 20th Mississippi, and he then commandeered two steamboats that had just docked at Dover. Floyd ejected 400 just-arrived reinforcements from the boats, condemning them to capture, and then had his Virginians start boarding while he ordered the 20th Mississippi to guard the landing against the growing mob of desperate Confederate soldiers seeking to escape the doomed fort. When the last of his Virginians were aboard, Floyd had had the steamboats cast off, leaving the hapless Mississippians stranded ashore. Well, obviously, Tracy was a bit nervous and afraid to give me any of the juicy parts here at the end with regard to John B. Floyd and his relinquishing of command or his conduct here at the steamboat landing at Dover, since she thought his actions might push me over the edge in a spectacular fit of indignation and condemnation. But just to show that I can be a model of restraint, I'll simply allow the useless bastard's contemptible behavior to speak for itself. And that's all I've got to say about that. On the 16th, Grant sent a message to Halleck in St. Louis, which began, quote, General, I am very pleased to announce to you the unconditional surrender this morning at Fort Donelson, with 12,000 to 15,000 prisoners, at least 40 pieces of artillery, and a large amount of stores, horses, mules, and other public property, end quote. The actual number of Confederates that went into captivity with the surrender are still in dispute, but Grant's message to Halleck was likely correct in that it was somewhere between 12,000 and 15,000 men. The garrison at Fort Donelson was the first of three Confederate armies that would surrender to Ulysses S. Grant during the course of the Civil War. The other two will be at Vicksburg and at Appomattox. All through the day on Sunday, the 16th, Confederates marched into Dover, stacked their arms, and then stood around in the still miserable weather. Colonel Charles Whittlesley of the 20th Ohio wrote, quote, Crowds of Confederates, very few of whom were in uniform and who were unable to find shelter, stood in groups in the rain under guard of our men. A more pitiable collection of human beings was probably never seen. 
Dejected and exhausted, hungry, wet, and cold, they huddled together in the mud and rain, waiting for the rolls to be made out and rations issued. Very few had blankets or overcoats. Some were without hats, their heads and shoulders wrapped in shawls as protection against the rain. End quote. Toward the end of that day, the Confederates began to be loaded onto steamboats that would take them north into captivity, where they would go into prisoner-of-war camps in Indiana, Illinois, Ohio, and at Boston. Not all of the prisoners made it to POW camps, though. Some Confederates simply walked away into the woods in the confusion following the capitulation. That's exactly what Bushrod Johnson did. After his escape, he'll command a brigade at the Battle of Shiloh in April. All of Grant's division commanders and most of his brigade commanders received promotions after the victories at Fort Henry and Fort Donelson, but Grant's came first. On February 19, 1862, Abraham Lincoln presented Grant's name to the Senate for confirmation as a major general. And along with the promotion, the northern newspapers bestowed a new nickname upon him. U.S. Grant became Unconditional Surrender Grant. Grant's terse reply to Buckner's note made him famous with the northern public, and he was now a national hero. While often considered a relatively minor action, especially compared with later battles in the West like Shiloh or Vicksburg or Chickamauga, nevertheless, it's really not possible to overstate the strategic impact of Grant's twin victories at Forts Henry and Donelson. In the span of just 10 days, Grant had engineered a campaign that forced Albert Sidney Johnston to completely abandon the Confederate defensive line in the war's western theater. The back-to-back victories were body blows, forcing Johnston to give up an area of almost 20,000 square miles. The Federal timberclads had already raided all the way up the Tennessee River into the Deep South to Florence, Alabama, and just over a week after the fall of Fort Donelson, Grant sent two brigades of troops up the Cumberland River, and Nashville fell to them without a shot. The fall of Forts Henry and Donelson began the downward spiral of Confederate hopes in the West. Near the end of his book on the battle, James R. Knight writes that, quote, What Ulysses S. Grant and his men did on the Tennessee and Cumberland Rivers those ten days in February dictated the conduct of the war in most of the Western theater for the next eighteen months. The Confederate army in the West would fight on for three more bloody, terrible years, but it would never completely recover from the disaster at Fort Donelson. End quote. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is The Civil War in the West, Victory and Defeat from the Appalachians to the Mississippi by Earl J. Hess. Since we were just talking about how the federal victories at Forts Henry and Donelson started the downward spiral of the Confederate hopes in the West, we thought we'd recommend a book that looks at the big picture as far as the Western theater of the Civil War, and Hess's book is an excellent study of the battles and campaigns and geography and soldiers and civilians that played a part in how the war was waged in that most critical region. So that's The Civil War in the West, Victory and Defeat from the Appalachians to the Mississippi by Earl J. Hess. And you can find it and all of our other book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. 
As we close, we want to thank everyone who has left us those great five-star ratings and reviews on iTunes. And then don't forget that you can join us on Facebook and also follow us on Twitter. Yep. Uh, This past week on Facebook, you would have got a sneak peek at the next five things that are coming up on the podcast timeline, as well as finding out how Stephen Colbert set Civil War scholar James McPherson straight on the cause of the war. And on Twitter, we're still covering what happened 150 years ago during the Civil War, as well as bringing other interesting historical stuff to your attention. You can find handy links to our Facebook page and our Twitter feed if you go to the podcast website. And then we want to be sure to thank Jason P. for his donation this past week. Jason is from Arkansas, not too far from my hometown of Fayetteville. And Jason also sent us some photos from the activities commemorating the 150th anniversary of the Battle of Westport uh, in Missouri near Kansas City. And we put those up on Facebook. So thanks for those, Jason. And then thanks to all of y'all for tuning in to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I hope you'll join us next week when we start to look at Sibley's New Mexico campaign. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.